Welcome to Emmaus Way. Let's gather together. This is Kindness by Naomi Nye. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it, speak to it till your voice catches and the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Welcome to Emmaus Way. If you don't know me, my name is Rodi, and I'm on staff with Ben, and we do have two other ministers that are also on staff with us, Elizabeth and Molly, but they are at a wedding, and so we are at half mass today. Um, we are talking about, I think y'all are talking about kindness today downstairs, Ben, and in part of our table series, and upstairs the kids will also be talking about tables, but we're going to be talking about God's economy and um, scarcity and the story of the loaves and fishes. So that's a little bit about what we are doing upstairs and downstairs and in that vein we have been singing each week um, one of my favorite hymns for everyone born um, and is, is it safe to say we could sing it without me singing it first or should I sing it first probably I should sing it first okay so I'm gonna sing it first and then we'll all try singing it together for everyone born, a place at the table. For everyone born, clean water and bread. A shelter, a space, a safe place for growing. For everyone born, a star overhead. And God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy, compassion and peace. Yes, God will delight when we are creators of justice, justice and joy. So let's all try singing that together now. For everyone born, place at the table. For everyone born, clean water and bread. A shelter is space, a safe place for growing. For everyone born, a star God will delight when we are creators of justice and joy, compassion and peace. Yes, God will delight when we are creators of justice, justice and joy. Awesome, everyone. And so now, kids, let's all go upstairs together while the adults get things going downstairs. Thank you, Rhodey. Hi, everybody. I'm Ben. I think I don't know a few of you, but a lot of you I do. And, yeah, I'm the person that tries to make the soundboard work. So, yeah, I can add that to whatever degree of credibility you thought I had heretofore. 
Um, welcome. Yeah, as Rody said, we are like half masked in a lot of ways tonight. For a long time, I wondered if yeah we would get hurricaned out and had had on the calendar for a long time. Some people a lot longer than me. Um, that today was also a day that Jenny Nicholson, who's been a member of our community, without whom this community probably would not have existed at many many stages of its evolution, is getting married today. And yeah, she must really like public Sunday evening events. Like so many times she made them happen, she decided to do it one more time. So Molly's participating in that. Elizabeth, her long, long-term friend is involved. And yeah, I think there's probably a good 10 or 15 people that aren't here because they're there. So you people who were excited to come out to anything probably at this point, we're good to, good to see you tonight. Um, a couple other things that are going on in the life of Mace Way, and if you think of something that I'm missing, I don't have Molly as my backstop like I usually do, but a couple of things I know for sure want to mention. One is um, our long time founding pastor, longtime pastor Tim Condor, who stepped off of staff this past summer. We are still getting ready for a big celebration of him on October 6th, and everything that he's meant to Emmaus Way, there's a lovely little... Uh, venue out in Hillsboro that we've arranged to celebrate in October 6th in the evening. You should have gotten an invite on that and you should also be getting like regular requests for contributions of various kinds to help pull this thing off. So I am not on that team pulling it together but Molly is, Elizabeth is, Susan Jakes is and those sort of folks are still yeah, wanting you to make sure you know that happens and help helping to make it happen. The second thing is this space tomorrow night um, on, because it's a third Monday and we're going to be doing this every third Monday for months uh, forward from now, we're going to be, along with Calvary UMC, inviting jazz musician Ernest Turner and his trio into this space and celebrating, yeah, just a community music night. The last time we did it, it was really, really a good kickoff. That was the first time ever. This will be the second time we're hoping to see it grow. And yeah, really invite a Way people to come into what was instantly a very diverse and vibrant space last time. I'm going to let Susan Charles, thanks for being here, Susan Charles. Morning church got canceled, Charles said, but evening church didn't. So thank you guys for being here and helping us prepare for tonight's dialogue musically. We were blessed by the minister who practiced what he preached. We were blessed by the poor man who said heaven is within reach. We were blessed by the girl selling roses, showed us how to live. We were blessed by the neglected child who knew how to forgive. We were blessed by the battered woman who didn't seek revenge. We were blessed by the warrior who didn't mean to win. We were blessed by the blind man who could see for miles and miles. We were blessed by the fighters who didn't fight for the prize. We were blessed by the mother who gave up the child. 
we were blessed by the soldier who gave up his life we were blessed by the teacher who didn't have a degree we were blessed by the prisoner who knew how to be free we were blessed feel the need to justify songs. <laughs> this song gets a lot of, uh, takes a lot of heat. I think it's a great song. Um, but to the fine people who have let me play Justin Bieber, I think that you all can, you all can take it. Um, in the conversation when we were talking about songs for this week and Ben was saying that y'all were still in your table series and that you were talking about kindness. Uh, I find that for me, one of the barriers to my own kindness when it comes especially to generosity is a desire to be an individual and a desire to be free. And I have always really loved the way that this song very lovingly indicts freedom at the expense of a life of love and a life of connection. Um, you know, the lyric, freedom, oh freedom, that's just some people talking is... Uh, is so great, I think, in the context of this song because um, in my own life there's often not as much value, especially in the kingdom of God, to my uh, freedom to do whatever I want as there is to uh, my obligation to generosity. So that's my justification for this, and it's beautiful. Hit it, Charles. Desperados 
Why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for so long now. Oh, you're a hard one. I know that you've got your reasons. These things that are pleasing you can hurt you somehow. Don't you draw the queen of diamonds, boy. She'll beat you if she's able. You know the queen of hearts is always now it seems to me some fine things have been laid upon your table but you only want the ones that you can get desperado oh you ain't getting no younger Talking. Your prison is walking through this world all alone. Don't your feet get cold in the winter time? The sky won't snow and the sun won't shine. It's hard to tell the nighttime from the day. Peace on earth, the peace 
that was meant to be with God as creator, family all are we. Let us walk with each other. moment now with every step I take let this be my solemn vow to take each moment and live each moment with peace That was lovely, even the desperado. Uh, so yeah, I think Suze gets us going in precisely the direction where this text asked us to land. If you were here last week, we're in a lot of ways following up on, taking a real jump years and a lot of violence ahead into a story of David and Jonathan and Saul last week to David and Jonathan's son this week. and. Yeah, asking of this text and asking in a continued way as we reflect on tables and encounter and in what ways we're being asked to bear witness and find new kinship with each other. What do we do with histories that seem to suggest that that's not possible, that are, that are so violent, that are so, uh, seem so irreparable that they push up against the very notion of kindness? Um, and yeah, this story tonight is is, yeah, one that, that suggests that tension in full force. Um, I want to invite you to pass the peace to each other, but also wanted to acknowledge, I think these are probably actually meeting now, so, and I think we got a couple of minutes, and wanted to say, we're having these table groups, one of the practices we've taken on in this, we've taken on a, a theme for the year of bearing witness and reclaiming kinship, and said, let's start that around table with each other, and so most of you have been invited to at least, hopefully a lot of these have started to meet, and wanted to ask, out of those table groups that you're gathering in, is there anything of like an impression, of a like takeaway, of a, that you would want to share in share in this space? Um, if not, that's fine. But wanted to create that because we would hope that in all these things, this conversation, those conversations are beginning to entwine together. So. It's an open invitation to share something that's come up in those groups or or the effort to have them. Um, so I've been on the nice big for like eight years or something. 
Anyone else? I've never said anything um, in church, but we've been coming for a long time and, and in a space with a smaller group of people, I felt um, that I could share in a way that I, sometimes I don't feel like I want. I, I'm um, a little bit intimidated to, in, intimidated to in a bigger setting, so I think it, it carves out um, a more intimate um, space for all of those of us who don't always want to speak. And look at you now. No. <laughs> Maybe one more if there is one. Yeah, um, I think for, at least for me, um, it affirmed that it's worth the effort to get around the table with people. Um, because you know, we had a new baby at home and we hosted. And it, it was just nice to know that even with a bunch of people you don't know, if you put around the table with some food, good conversation happens. Um, and so Thank you, man. And that's a good one to close them because it is worth the effort. Ours hasn't met yet because it got canceled <laughs> two times, and we're still working on it. We, yeah, the hurricane got us once, and yeah. But please keep leaning into these. It's good to hear those reports. And yeah, if you're someone who's here at Emmaus Way and like I don't know anything about this community, I'm still trying to figure it out. This would be open to you as well. Um, it's a good time for me to mention. There's a welcome table back there where. We have yellow cards out where you could give us an email address um, so you could get information about stuff like this that's happening in this gathering and outside. Um, and yeah, if that's something that you still want to be a part of, please, yeah, let me know afterwards and we can, I'm sure, still find you a place, even perhaps in a group that hasn't met yet. So um, with that, I'd invite you to pass the peace of Christ to each other as we always do. Uh, greet somebody you don't know. I don't think we have snacks back there, but there's water and coffee, and people are very nice to talk to. So enjoy each other for a little bit, and we'll gather back for the dialogue in a second. So welcome back. I want to do follow Molly's example from last week and invite us, as Molly told the story of doing this practice in the bathroom before doing a dialogue and thinking, wow, gosh, I should really do that with the people. So I would invite all of you to take a moment of silence, of prayer, of focusing your mind and f feel this as like an invitation into God's presence in this place and also into each other's presence in this dialogue we're stepping into. There is no sweeter sound than that. Sorry. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. <laughs> so, um, if you, uh, I imagine a lot of you might not have been here last week, so I want to, like, a little bit of last night's tying these, uh, tonight is tying these two texts together. Um, but I want to first say that last week in the text, we were in uh, 1 Samuel 20, I believe it was, and talking about. Jonathan and Saul and David and this climactic break of kinship between Saul and David, but also Jonathan thrust in the middle of that. And one of the things Molly talked about in that was the way in which Jonathan was caught in this moment of niceness, in the, in the, the, the system of like kinship, of kingship, all those things had been arranged so that it was possible for him to ignore the fact that David life was significantly under threat 
And David explains this to John. He doesn't quite want to believe it. It was almost as if there was some barrier of niceness or decorum that had to be fractured by Saul's anger and throwing a spear at Jonathan before he could be opened um, to that sense of niceness being fractured. So I want to start us off by asking this question. If we take the idea that there's such a thing as niceness, and we talked about that's intersection with whiteness, we talked the ways in which we have patterns of being with each other to allow things to exist unexplored or unexamined, allow us to rest in complicity rather than move into galvanizing action towards a different way of doing things. So I wanted to ask you, what's the difference between niceness and kindness? We look at kindness in this text tonight, but reflect on just in your experience, what's the difference between those two? How do you tell the difference? And when you felt that difference, what does it feel like? I grew up with an insane amount of niceness, um, and it was to cover up the reality of what was going on in our house, and it was, um, it was really violent, and um, Tim actually didn't understand that violence when your story is changed and edited in order to drown out the voice of pain and need. Mm. Kindness to me is braver and it um, actually helps. It's, it's brave and it, it goes into the darkness and it does good to people who need it. Thanks, Brian. That's, yeah, that resonates a lot with me. Others, difference between niceness and kindness. story on that, a different understanding of how these two might relate. One of the things that stood out to me a lot from the talk last week was just this, you know, talking a lot about anger and how it's often repressed and not allowed to be shared, and that was just not my experience growing up, but it sounds like a, from the people that I knew that grew up in like the Southern Bible Belt, that's what it felt like, like, I don't know, that's a very general comment, but Nice also feels that way, like very so If you go up, you know, people are in some ways it's superficial, but in some ways it's nice. Like you make people, you make eye contact. Like you can kind of like I look at babies and I'm like, oh, so cute. If you go to New York, like, you don't really see that. Um, you know, uh, it's not necessarily always a bad good thing, but it just feels kind of superficial and like like playing this game of culture. You're talking about nice. That's nice. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> I think I would say just um, in, a, in a different vein from sort of social niceties that actually sometimes are nice. Um, 
when I think about the distinction that was being made last week versus kindness, I feel like kindness is actually concerned with somebody else and mm -hmm. nice is concerned with like whether or not I'm perceived mm -hmm. in a positive way. Like, are people thinking I'm nice? Mm -hmm. I want people to notice I'm being nice. Mm -hmm. I want to seem nice. I don't want to seem not nice. Mm -hmm. Whereas kindness seems to be like, wow, that person is sad. <laughs> or, or what, what would be nice for that person? <laughs> you know, anyway, so yeah, thank you, Christine. Yeah, th I think those there's a real difference between those two, and it seems like we can immediately reach for, yeah, what uh, social examples of that, what that feels like. So, with that in your mind, we're going to get into this text tonight. But by way of our text last week, I don't want to assume anyone knows a lot about the Samuels. Like I spent some time reading them this week, and I was like, whoa! I mean, that's that's been a long. There's some stuff in there that I did not immediately recall. So I want to briefly put us in the context of this 1 Samuel 20 text we looked at last week and then maybe introduce some of the intervening stuff that gets us from that text to this week's text. So last week, 1 Samuel 20, we got a window in this break of kinship um, that happens in the midst of an Israel that's in crisis. There's Philistines on the outside and this Saul is the first ever king and that's still being sorted out on the inside. Saul's in his own personal crisis. He's had the sense of falling out of favor, perhaps with God, certainly with his people and their apparent preference for David, who's set up to be the new king. And then we've got Jonathan and David, who are both deeply involved in, in the kingship um, monarchy sort of system. Jonathan's this courageous and zealous warrior um, who's set up really to be, if Saul were to be the kingly line, Jonathan would be a successor. And David is this handsome, charismatic hero who's kind of come out of nowhere from tending sheep to be most uh, Israel's most celebrated warrior. He's married into Saul's family. So Jonathan and David are not just bound by blood kinship now, by marriage, David. They're also deeply bound by affection for each other, and they've made an oath of fealty to not just each other, but to their families in perpetuity. These, these are two guys that care deeply for each other. All that's complicated by the fact that Saul is really jealous of David on the rise, and violently, murderously so. And so last week's text, we get this break where Jonathan, as I said, doesn't want to believe that his father's state power has turned against his friend David. Um, and they come up with this plan. The long story short, Jonathan goes to represent David in, in David's absence at Saul's table, and Saul is so furious at not just David's absence, but Jonathan's apparent covering for David, that he uses these words, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Um, bring David to me, for he will surely die. So it gets that serious, and when Jonathan says, well, maybe he shouldn't die, that's when the spear gets thrown at him. Um, and he leaves in anger and sorrow and disgrace. And it's at that, that point that David, after, this is like the third or fourth attempt on David's life, but it's like, this has actually reached a critical stage and maybe I shouldn't hang out in Saul's household or, um, or the kingly residence or city. I should get out to somewhere else. So some of the things that happen after that story last week. Um, because I think we actually miss a good bit um, if we don't at least briefly outline that. So David, for most of that time, is a man on the run. 
He goes from dining at the king's table to depending on the kindness of strangers. He pulls to him this ar army of several hundred ne'er-do-wells. Text describes him as the distressed, the debtors, and the discontented. Um, and there's a lot of violence of one kind or another surrounding David. He gains men, he loses men. He gains wives and possessions. His family are killed and possessions are taken from him. Life on the run isn't easy. Um, but David seems determined to live that life of uncertainty rather than even consider making a move against Saul. Saul does his part and pursues. He's still murderous. He's still conspiratorial. He's still very angry. He kills people to aid David. He even kills some priests. Um, he appears with an army of thousands pretty much at every rumor of David's most recent whereabouts. And the situation just never quite resolves. It goes on for chapter and chapter. It just gradually devolves. There's a couple made-for-TV moments where David has chances to kill Saul somehow himself personally in a cave once. This happens not once but twice. And David uses these opportunities to reaffirm his respect for Saul's and for God's anointing over Saul. And both times Saul recants his violent intentions, but then not that long afterwards, he's hunting David again. So it goes on and on like this until things start to look inevitable enough that David says, all right, I'm gonna go hang out with the Philistines. And so he does. He fights some skirmishes for them and there's about to be this climactic battle between God's people, Israel, and the Philistines, their longtime opponents and oppressors. And the Philistines decide that maybe David isn't really a trustworthy ally in this battle, push him to the side, but in that ensuing battle, Saul is killed and Jonathan is killed, as well as some of Saul's older sons. And so then we're in this situation of a sort of cold war between David and Saul's legacy becomes a very hot war. And there's a seven-year power struggle that ensues between the house of David and the house of Saul. David is, even in the midst of this, frequently and publicly mourning the decline of Saul's house. When he finds out Saul's dead, he writes a song and teaches it to all the people about Saul's sad death and what that means for Israel. He mourns when Saul's captain of the guard is killed. He mourns when Saul's ruling son is murdered. And David actually has his murderers murdered. Um, so David is going out of his way to continue to honor Saul and Jonathan through his line. But ultimately, eventually, violently, things get to where, if you're reading 1 Samuel, it seems like they were pretty much going from Goliath forward. And that is, David is crowned king over all Israel. Saul has pretty much no descendants left to speak of, but, and, and on the back of that, the people sort of acclaim David as king over all the tribes. David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, makes a renewed covenant with God, and there's some military sorting out of the Philistines. The text gives us, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went, and David reigned over all Israel and administered justice and equity to all his people. So we've reached sort of a stopping point in this long saga that we were in the midst of last week. So I want us to read the text for this week into that context. If somebody would read 2 Samuel 9 for us. David asked, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I, to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and he was summoned to David. The king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. The king said, Is there anyone remaining of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? 
Ziba said to the king, There remains a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, son of Amiel, at Lodebar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, at Lodebar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and did obeisance. David said, Mephibosheth, he answered, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. He did obeisance and said, What is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servant shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food to eat. But your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, your servant will do. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was laying in front of his feet. Thanks, Brian. So I just want to start out with impressions about this text. Uh, are in the context of the history, we just, I just ran through, what, yeah, what strikes you here? I'm struck by how vulnerable Mephibosheth is, mm. and visibly vulnerable he would be today. Like, there's no, like, in that culture, this was hard, right? Like, it's just like, he's, he's a, a vulnerable person in his body, um, and, yeah. Thanks, Christian. There, I add that there's a brief aside in the middle of some other chapter where we ex explain that Mephibosheth is lame in both his feet because after the battle where Saul and Jonathan were killed, his nursemaid was running to get him as quickly out of town as possible, and he was dropped. And that's the reason why he's been lame from a very young age. So it's bound up in this whole history of violence around his family. Yeah. I'm struck by David's intentionality. So I think of um, the Good Samaritan story as like when you're on your way and you see something, then you have an opportunity mm -hmm. to be kind. But this idea of, I want to do kindness to Saul's um, family and people mm -hmm. is a different, So I've talked a lot, but I'll talk some more. Um, I've thought about Mephibosheth for about 10 years. I hate this story. Um, I feel like God has shown me that I'm Mephibosheth in many ways. And one of the things that really bugs me about Mephibosheth is that if you read through the entire story in Chronicles and Samuel, is that Mephibosheth never gains his sense of dignity. No matter what David does, he's always groveling around, 
calling himself a dead dog. It's questionable whether he betrayed David in his hour of need and then recanted and was groveling and stuff. And the thing that I was thinking about recently about Mephibosheth was the difference between David and Jesus and how Jesus had this ability to restore people's dignity to them and David didn't. And he did, I guess he just didn't have the power. But Mephibosheth always ate at the king's table, so he was supposedly one of these king's sons, but he never really felt like one. He never acted like a king's son. And um, this lameness just really marks his life and defines him as a person. Yeah, thanks for inserting that into this, Brian. Yeah, this, I hear you in your voice, yeah, how painful this story can be used and I want to echo into that like my own experience like this was a story in my um, formative church experience it was often reached for in exactly those terms right it's Jesus um, it's one of those stories we bridge from the Old Testament to the new we are Mephibosheths right poor and lame before the Lord uh, and the question of where Mephibosheth's agency is in that where our agency is if we find ourselves in those shoes is yeah, is a really difficult one. Other other folks, think Joel. I'll just say this: is like David's sure being kind to Meshivah, Sesh. Sorry, I just can't say it. Um, trying to in my head like for five minutes. Um, but like, what about these? You know, fifteen sons of Ziba and twenty servants. Like to me, like it is boring and offensive that we'll hear kind like. David's version of kindness is restoring hereditary affluence to some of his hereditarily affluent. Like, <laughs> like okay, so like I, I just, I'm like I suppose I you know like in principle feel sorry for this guy he's disabled, but like I don't know you know like I work at these people who feel aggrieved because they used to you know because you know they're. Millennials and the affluence that their baby boomer parents have has not trickled down to them, but they, you know, went to do Durham Academy or kind of some, you know, some school like that. And I think that they deserve. You know, I think they, you know, I don't know. It's just like I, I just I don't know. I, you, do you have an application for this text, Joel, and just sort of like the present context? Like, I, 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 unlike the two of you, I've never heard of this before. So it's, it's, oh, oh, yeah. Like, oh. I, I'm, oh wow. Okay. Certainly never met Samuel ever. <laughs> so, so I would say, like, yeah, my reading of this again was like, oh yeah, the Ziba character, like that's interesting. Like he's kind of the gateway to this whole interaction, and then at the end, he gets filed back in the servant territory for like sort of like congratulations, you made this all possible, and now you may serve him for the rest of your, yeah. Um, and and I wonder, yeah, how much is this? Yeah, where where has Ziba been? Like, what has his social position been? You know, how did the the battle of David and Saul and their households affect him? But yeah, there's a real like economic view of this to say, huh, what what's actually being reformed or repaired here? Um, I want to so continue to talk about this text and reflect, but I want to throw back also this idea that there are a lot of circles closing here, and we're already stuck about. But yeah, let's thinking about um, some of the circles of relationship, of narrative emotion, this is one of those things put together, like if you were gonna film this, right, there would be some, there would be some swelling strings in here somewhere, right, that would be, 
there will be some heartstring tuggy sort of moments. So yeah, in that bigger context, what's, what's going on here? So I've been wrestling with the, the niceness, kindness thing, and part, partly because I don't know what you all talked about last week, so I'm assuming you did talk about this, but what struck me about that was kindness being related to family making and kinship. And um, so when you're kind, you're crossing a barrier to do something that forges relationship with someone and makes them your kin. Um, and I think the way we talked about it was entirely positive, but what's surfacing here are some negatives there, because making one kin is to, is to open a table and to make them families, but I think we all know that family is not easy either. And so these sorts of relationship dynamics and power relationships that both Brian and Joel are surfacing are, are still part of what it means to be kin. Um, the Hatfield and the McCoys are kin, right? And there's violences that come along with being, forging kinship, and there, there are ways in which kindness within your, within whatever circle you draw, as big as you draw it, still excludes others or can be mobilized to hurt others. And so a lot of, I, I don't know, that's what's resonating for me in this story is the way that even in attempts at forging kinship, there are still violences that are being done to those outside of the table and, and even at the table. Yeah, so kinship is a relative term, right? Because, yeah, I think that in the, we're pulling from Father Greg Boyens that reclaiming kinship would be the idea that, you know, let there be peace on earth. God is creator, family, all are we, right? And so in that grand sense, but yeah, how do you reclaim that? You reclaim that in much more immediate contexts in which your decisions to align kinship um, or reclaim it or redefine it, start to have, yeah, economic consequences. You start to play into the systems that are around you as you look to define it, for sure. Um, so maybe I'd follow up and say, like, in this text, what is the shape of kindness in this interaction? Certainly David's reaching for something like a realized kindness when you look at what he's suffered through and how hard he's worked to not push back against the enmity that's come from Saul's, the, the direction of Saul's lineage, but yeah, if this, if this is kindness or if it's not, like, what is the shape of that sort of kindness in this particular interaction? We might ask, who's giving, who's receiving, who's in need, what does it cost? Well, I'm gonna talk again. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that also struck me about this is that David has and understanding and sort of the treatment of Jonathan as a person and Saul with respect and Phibosheth and his son Micah held intention for me always with how David is with women and how David consistently like marries lots of people, women, and those women, I don't know what happens to them, right? Like it's just like women are traded back and forth in a story. Um, and then his son Solomon has lots of them. You know, David like rapes Bathsheba. She loses her son. We're supposed to feel sad. You know, that that's God's justice. Like, there's just so much about how women are made flat in David's life compared to the degree of humanity that he shows to Jonathan and Saul. And 
David as a character, I totally resonate, yeah, like, David the lauded man after God's own heart hero, yeah, versus David who has managed to get this far by killing a lot of folks, like, he married Saul's daughter on the back of a hundred Philistine foreskins, right, if you, like, there's, there's a lot of blood on the tracks and, like, water under the bridge and, like, women cast aside, like, that just is this text, um, and so in some ways, yeah, I think we're being asked, like, in what way can we get our heads around and laud or find the bejeweledness of this kind of kindness amidst the culture that David is necessarily a part of? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to say, I think what's interesting is the word show kindness and this idea of um, it being an act as opposed to, like, how do we show kindness as opposed to being a kind person? Mm. I don't know. I think people that aren't maybe kind people can sometimes show kindness. Mm. But I don't. I think the ultimate goal is to is to be the kind of is to be both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a level of demonstration yeah. about this. This right? is obviously an act. Bring him to me. Back and saying, 
all these people have died. There's all these ways that I haven't made good on the promise. Is there a way that I can show covenant faithfulness? Is there a way I can make good on my word to Jonathan? And so part of what I wonder is, like, if there's a question the text is asking me today, it would be something more like, what does it mean to be a woman of my word? And what would it mean to be a woman who made oaths across political lines that implicated her family and then made good on them? What would I have to do to even find myself in a position where I was making blood oaths, family oaths, promises to people who could wreck my fortunes? And then what would it mean to make good on my word? Yeah. <laughs> totally. And it brings to mind for me, like the, the piece of this tonight's text that kept coming, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I, is there still anyone left? Like, it's that bad. He had to call somebody to be, like the distance was that far. Is there anyone still living that I could actually cross this line for and with? And then, yeah, I'm with you. I start thinking, who are my, is there still anyone left? So, who are your, <laughs> I put that to you, like, who are the still anyone left? Or in the context, we bring in anger. Um, and the kind of anger that drove Saul in last week's text. If we're talking about, faithfulness that we would have to reach across anyone lefts for, what does that start to look like in your imagination, what comes up for you in the context we find ourselves today? Well, one person isn't much of a threat, right? So, especially, you know, somebody who's disabled, and then, you know, especially that time. So, like, you know, like, like if we're talking about, like, covenant and, like, crossing boundaries or whatever, like, when, like, David pushes things to the, so far of an extreme that, like, there's no danger anymore for him. And he can do this because it's not in danger. Like, if he was in danger, like, he doesn't do this, you know, two or three chapters earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I mean, I don't know what's happening two or three chapters earlier, but, like, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he doesn't do this earlier in the story when there might have been... Anyone else putting this in our context in some way? Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. 
hard sometimes because I have this tendency to want to see what, where I am. But what I've reminded is the complexity of just humanity. Like, we aren't privy to motivations here. We know what we know given the way the story was told and the context that it was told. Um, there's certainly so many cultural things at play here um, that are really hard to wrap your head around, but at the same time, like, I see, I see this tension between, you know, David wanting to be safe, but also wanting to keep his, his promise, and I think if we kind of wrestle a little bit with what that means as a human, like, that those two things can exist, like, I can have, I can be a person that does set up those lines, those cultural lines, and doesn't want to cross them, but I can also be the person that tries to extend my hand beyond that. And then those two things can sort of happen together. Um, I don't know, I'm just struck by like the humanity here and how when I hear stories like this told in my Christian tradition, it's always very flat. And this is the takeaway. And this is who you are in the story. And this is who is this person in the story. But I see myself in so many of these characters because it's there. Yeah, thanks for naming. It's difficult to find ourselves. Which is our which is our part in this story? In so many of these stories, and that notion of like if kindness is anything, it's certainly as we it's certainly a humanity. There's certainly a vulnerability. There's like this notion of restored dignity um, that that Brian introduces to. I want to like close this with a story of like as I was thinking over this. This is something that came up for me, and I'm not even quite sure why. But to, to say briefly, like there was, you know, I worked for Religious Coalition for Nama Durham. We hold vigils at the places where people in Durham get shot, which tend to be um, fairly poor black neighborhoods because those are the people we tend to allow to get shot in Durham. And so I went to one of these. It was just over the hill from my house. I walked there in five minutes. I may have even told some of you about this before. Um, it was a 30-some-year-old mother of five who'd been shot. I walked over. Um, the coalition wasn't necessarily sponsoring this vigil, but we were a part of it. I walked over there, I stood there, I felt my overwhelming impotence to the entire context. Um, it was one of those moments like, I looked at the houses that they were building and I knew what they cost and I knew my role of where my house was built in that and a woman was dead and a community that I barely ever see, to be honest, was gathered around to mourn their friend, their sister, their mother, and I'm standing there trying to do my part, putting my body in the right place to be kind and do the thing, and it just felt hollow. And after it was over, I was feeling all, I was like, it was, ugh, I just couldn't, and a, a guy named Alan Jones came up to me. If anybody knows who Alan Jones is here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Alan is like, 60-year-old, black, gay, evangelical, blurs every line you ever have, runs a ministry out of his front porch over in East Durham, always handing people chicken and like asking you to donate to the latest thing. that He knows somebody who needs something and you could help give it to him. Alan is that guy and Alan comes up to me and I'm feeling like I felt and it had to be on my face and Alan said, how are you doing? Me. 
this vigil, this context, and Alan comes up to me and he says, how are you doing? Are you doing all right? You know, I have this thing, it's gonna be on my porch, and I think you, if you could come, I think it would be a lot better if you were there. And when I thought about kindness this week, I thought about Alan coming up to me in a space where I had nothing to offer and felt totally done and emptied out and saying, how are you doing? And I think if kindness, if anything, if it's just like bearing witness, it's this notion of wondering how people are doing. That it's, that niceness isn't gonna wonder how you're doing. Niceness is, is gonna say, how, how am I doing? But where is kindness possible? Where is kindness inviting us into wondering how people in our community are doing? Maybe that's something we can hold on to as we keep coming around table together. Maybe that's something that's more possible even for someone with David's history, even someone for my history. So I leave you in that story tonight, and we're going to leave you in two songs by Suze and Charles. And these are great. Suze, you're going to tell them why you chose these, right? This first uh, song is an old favorite of mine, but it seemed uh, on the nose more than anything. The um, the idea that you know you can only get so far from someone before you're coming back around the other direction, <laughs> and uh, and that there is kind of a hope in that. So, um, as a confession, I thought this was a good prayer. It's so easy to say you don't care. It's so easy to say you don't need it. When you got it all, you know. Now every day you feel a bit less. And when you get dressed, remind yourself this. And there's just yourself you can do. Yeah, there's just so much you can do And I say, let the distance bring us together again dark who knows what we'll find and if it's not yours i can't say if it's mine just make it soft set it right now take some blame when you're right don't you forget who you are you are the one that brings the best of us all nothing else but Nothing else but let the distance bring us together again. Do 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 Out on your own, you make your own, satisfy your own self. You don't have to think you don't. You watch your back, you stink, you lack, you got the right. 
It's so easy to say you don't care It's so easy to say you don't need it When you got it all and you know When you got it all and you know It's so easy to say you don't care It's so easy to say you don't need it When you got it all and you know when you got it all, you know I say Let the distance bring us together again And last as a blessing, uh, a Sturgill Simpson song. I've been thinking a lot about his album. A good friend of mine had a baby this week. And, um, you know, one of the first records that he played as newborn was this uh, Sturgill Simpson album that is in large part written to his newborn son. And um, in the discussion of kinship, there are the ways that we are, you know, raising up our children, but then kind of the, the mothering and fathering that we do for one another, I think is also very important in cultivating a culture of kindness. There will be days when the sun won't shine When it seems like the whole world is against you Don't be afraid, life is unkind You can let go of the pain if you choose Fall apart, it ain't too hard. A universal heart glowing, glowing all around you.
Frank, Suze, Charles, Charles, all of you for a lovely dialogue tonight. I will not say a lot to invite you to this table tonight, except to say that this is a space um, about which it would be easy to say you don't care, that you don't need it, that we've got it all, and we know we're just fine. But in fact, this is a space of God's abundant love, something that doesn't care how much you need it or how much you know or how easy it would be to dismiss. All it wants to tell us is of a universal heart, a universal love glowing, flowing all around us. I invite you to come up and pour juice, pour wine, break bread, break a gluten-free cracker for each other, saying the blood of Christ shed for you, the love of Christ here available for you. I invite you to this table in the light of a God of kindness, a God that knows every bit of our humanity and declares that we can live in dignity just the same. Welcome to this table. <laughs>